Well, it's been some time, a few weeks, month perhaps, maybe a month, couple months, since we've wrapped up our study of the book of Nehemiah. We've done a couple of uh, one-off kind of sermon uh, type things, a couple of maybe little mini sermons, some topical things, I should say. And uh, as many of you might know, I, I do enjoy giving those, and I uh, often can get pretty passionate about some of those, but my heart beats to uh, teach through Scripture in a systematic fashion. Uh, very early in my ministry, I felt very clearly called by the Lord to, to preach in that manner, as I think it's uh, very good for us biblically to just uh, do the hard work of working systematically through texts in Scripture, not uh, just pull out a couple of verses here or uh, I, nothing against topical sermons. I, as I said, I preach them every once in a while. But I think it uh, puts us in a place where we do not get to pick and choose what we uh, get to read or get to study. It forces us to deal with uh, all of Scripture. It forces us to do the disciplined work of digging through Scripture. I sometimes, I think it's mostly tongue-in-cheek, but I sometimes, um, you know, hear comments or receive grief from how long it takes us to work through books of the Bible. And uh, I joke along with that. I take your comments as jokes because uh, to me that's, I think, worth our time and effort to uh, take time. And sometimes it takes a long time. I happen to think God's word is worth it. I happen to think it's worth taking time to dig into it and not uh, lightly cover things that are for our life. When scripture says that we've been given everything we need for life and godliness, I count the Bible as one of those things. Uh, certainly the Holy Spirit is uh, chief among those things. We've been filled with his very presence. But this inspired book of God serves to give us what we need for life and godliness. And if that is really true, think about what that, think about what that has to say. If that's really true, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and it comes through the Holy Spirit and through his inspired word, then ought we not to spend as much time as possible trying to understand what it says to us? We came out of a book of the Old Testament that uh, I loved. I happened to think the book of Nehemiah is one of, is one of my favorites. It's, it's filled with such rich truth of not just what God was doing historically, but who God is and what he wants from his people. And I think we're going to complement that. I think we should see it that way. Complement that with an incredible book from the New Testament that is going to help flesh out what it looks like for us as God's people to live with those walls put up around us. So if you have not done so already, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We're going to start today uh, embarking on a journey through this letter. It's not a very long letter, so it won't take us a real long time to get through. I'm at this point estimating somewhere around 30 messages from the book of Ephesians. So that'll take us uh, half a year or more probably, uh, maybe about a year by the time we're all done with a few things thrown in for extra uh, breaks that we have. Paul's letter to the book of Ephesians. I've entitled my entire message, uh, my entire series, Walk as Children of Light. Now that specific reference does come from Ephesians. It comes from late in the book, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 to 10, where Paul says we should walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So Paul inserts a parenthetical statement in there. So he's just declaring what he means when he says, walk as children of light, because he says in light, that fruit of light is what's where we find all the things that are good and right and true. So 
as a basic premise, I hope you can agree with this, but as a basic premise, we want to walk, we want to move through life, we are active. We don't just sit there, we don't just, we don't just uh, hide in our homes, we are active, we're walking, we're, 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 we're active as God's people, and we want to be active in the things that are good and right and true. There's plenty of things in our world that are not good and are not right and are not true, right? We want to walk as people who are good and right and true, which is what Paul is putting together as saying, walk as children of light. Walk as, there's so much richness in that phrase by itself. Walk as children. We are God's children. Walk as God's children in the light. And by the way, he follows that up and he says, walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In some way, I chose this as, a, as a, a title for the entire series because in some way, this is a bit of a summary of the positioning we are to put ourselves into. Much of this book is concerned with what the body of Christ, the church of Christ, the bride of Christ, the building of Christ. Pick whatever phrase. All those are used here in this book, by the way. Pick whatever phrase you want. But the people of God, the people who call themselves the followers of Jesus, in some way, this is a summary of our position how we position ourselves. We want to be walking as children of light. We want to try to figure out what God says is pleasing to him. I think right away, by the way, if, if you are at all paying attention in any way, I think right away there's all kinds of things that should be happening in our heads, our brains, as we think of just that basic statement. That is the summary of, this, of our position, of how we look at ourselves. I've made this statement before, and I'll say it again. I think we spend a lot of time as believers trying to figure out how, what we can get away with and still be okay. And this simple statement that Paul writes out in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8, last part of 8, 9, and 10, blows that whole mindset out of the water shows us from the very get-go that we are positionally not correct if, that is our, if, that's, if that's where we're at, that we are going to see what we can get away with and still be okay. Think of all the discussions or arguments or uh, things you might have with your believing friends or non-believing friends on what you can do and what you can get away with or how far we can get or how close we can get to the line or, or whether it's okay to do this or not okay to do that. Now, I want to be fair. Maybe not all that's from that position or that perspective, but much of that is from the perspective of what can I get away with and still be okay? And when I say that our basic position as children of light is that we should try to figure out what pleases God, that flips that completely upside down, Right? It now means we're, or, or maybe not upside down, it now means if we were facing this way before, seeing how, what we could get away with and still be okay, we're now turned this way and saying, God, how can I please you? Do you see how that's different? Do you see how that statement's different? That mindset's different? That position is different? I'm not saying, what can I get away with and still be saved? I'm saying, how can I best please you, God? I'm going to tell you that a lot of this book that we're going to read is about that mindset. The people of God should have that position, that we want to walk as children of light, because in the light we find all that's good and right and true. And the people of God try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So I've called it walk as children of light. 
Now today, I've entitled this specific message to the saints in Ephesus because that's where we must begin. Before we can jump into the meat of this, we must do some introductory work and some background work. And it turns out there's a lot of background work we have to do. So I have an entire message just on the background of these people from Ephesus and these Ephesian believers. And all of this background is going to come from Scripture itself. So if you thought we're going to make a lot of progress today, we're going to get through verse 1, actually, this morning. Paul says, and he says, he writes this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So, obviously, it doesn't take a lot of explanation, right? Uh, you might think where we're going to get, an, an, uh, you know, the next half an hour of text from or of teaching from, because it's pretty clear that Paul wrote this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus. That's the title of my message. However, I want to spend my time this morning helping us to understand who these Ephesian believers are, where they came from, what their experience has been like, what we know from Scripture about these Ephesian believers. Because Paul is writing to them, and there's some things that are kind of going to come up as he writes to them that we want to understand why Paul is writing these things. Now, we also want to do that so it helps us make sense to us and how we apply it to us. So... I want to just spend some time walking through and background from Scripture who these Ephesian believers are and what we know about them. It's the saints that he's writing to. You have a handout in the back side of your bulletin if you care to follow along. Everything there, every Scripture we're going to read, every point I'm going to make for the most part is right there. Now, I, I, I like to try to couple things visually with what we're doing. So I like to use maps. I'm a little bit of a map nerd, so you may not be, but uh, I'm a little bit of a map nerd. I love looking at maps and studying maps. Um, so we're going to look at a map today to help us figure out who, where we are talking about and what we are talking about and who we are talking about. I circled, if you look there on the map, I circled where the city of Ephesus is. I don't know if you, how well you can see that. It is what uh, is known as Asia Minor in the Bible. It is this little peninsula that sticks out from the mainland of Asia. Uh, I think there's a pointer on here somewhere. I don't know if I can know how to, there we go. Down here is where Jerusalem is, so in this bottom corner. So this is like a lot of the New Testament action takes place down here. You saw I circled up here. This is Ephesians or Ephesus. So pretty far removed in terms of uh, ancient geography from the heart of uh, where the Gospels took place and where many of these uh, early believers were. I have up there a map of Paul's journeys because Paul was the guy that's going to come there. This is, by the way, if you want modern-day reference, that's the modern-day country of Turkey. Turkey is in Asia Minor. It is uh, the westernmost portion of Asia. Now, there's a little bit of, of Russia way up north there. There's also part of Asia, considered part of Asia, right across the Aegean Sea from Greece and what is part of Europe today, the continent of Europe. Now, the first mention we see of Ephesus, if you're going to turn your Bible with me to the book of Acts, we're going to spend a bunch of time in the book of Acts today because that's where we're going to learn about uh, Ephesus. Uh, the first mention of it is in chapter 18, as Paul is on his second missionary journey, you recall that Paul went on the north side of Asia Minor. He visited some places up there. He had this vision of the man of Macedonia. He crosses over in Macedonia. Again, we're up here in the northern part. He crosses over. He goes to Philippi. He goes to Thessalonica, Berea, comes down to Athens. He's in Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, verse 18, it says this. After this, after whatever just happened, we're not going to read about that, but after whatever just happened, that's in Corinth, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So he was in Corinth. He went across the Aegean Sea 
and he set sail for Syria. Syria is what he's calling Asia Minor there. Continuing to read, it says, At Sancre he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And verse 19 it says, And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So the very first mention is very brief. Paul crosses over from Corinth. I circled Corinth there for you. He moves over and goes over to Ephesus. He takes these two people with him, Priscilla and Aquila. And he goes to the synagogue, as is Paul's custom. He teaches very briefly. Their curiosity is piqued. They want to hear more. And he says, they ask him, would you stay with us a little longer? And he says, no, I can't do that. And almost immediately, Paul leaves and heads back to Jerusalem, well, to Syria. Uh, sorry, I said Syria is Asia Minor. Syria is actually back in the mainland. He heads back to Syria, uh, to Caesarea. He does a little visit to Jerusalem and goes up to Antioch, which is where he started his journey from. He leaves behind Priscilla and Aquila. What I want you to know is that there was this introduction in Ephesus. They may have had some, some word already because uh, Ephesus was at a little bit of a crossroads. It's a very a big town, actually. It was a capital city of Rome, uh, of that province of Rome. So they may have heard some rumblings here and there, but Paul makes his introduction, goes to the synagogue. He's teaching Jewish people about Jesus. They want to hear more, and Paul says what? Nope, sorry, I got to move on. If God wills it, I will come back sometime. I always like pointing out things like this because I think we sometimes have this sort of default understanding that if somebody wants to hear more, then I should be the one that tells them. And I find it fascinating in several instances in Jesus' ministry, people wanted him to stay longer and he said, nope, I have to go on. And now here in Paul's ministry, we see the same thing. They said, we want to hear more. And he says, nope, I have to leave. It's pretty uncommon for us to have people tell us, hey, I want to hear more. And we say, sorry, got to keep moving. We often, in fact, would say that's wrong. I don't know exactly what to make of that other than I want to emphasize once again the centrality of being filled with the Holy Spirit and under his lordship. Because it's what makes things like this that don't appear to make sense to us be the right thing to do. Paul continues on his journey, and in some aspect, Ephesus is left in a bit in limbo. Now, as we keep reading, they're not quite left in limbo. I'm going to jump now to verse 24 of Acts chapter 19 and read these verses for you. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, that would be of the northern coast of Africa, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So I'm going to pause just a moment again and help you to see that Paul left. He left Priscilla and Aquila there. And again, I love going back to these kind of things. They're good reinforcement for us. If you're a child in Bible school from a couple of years ago already, several years ago, 
And when Paul left, he left Priscilla and Aquila there, and it just so happened that a man named Apollos came there and began to teach. Now, we know it didn't just so happen, right? God is orchestrating all these things because God is sovereign. But Apollos is there, and I love this description of Apollos because it says that he was full of the Spirit. He's fervent, in it, and he taught accurately the things of God, although we understand that he did not actually know the fullness of that yet. He knew everything pointing to Jesus he did not know Jesus had come or that Jesus was, had died and was resurrected and that Jesus was now effective, that he had brought the, this new way of, of living around. He knew, it says, the baptism of John. We're going to just stick that in the back of your mind. We're going to read about that in just a little bit again. We taught all these things, by the way, we went through Acts, but that was a number of years ago by now. So Priscilla and Aquila hear him. They know the truth of Jesus. They're acquainted with Jesus. They're followers of Jesus. Paul left them behind, and they take Apollos aside, and they explain to him more accurately. They say, hey, this Jesus you're talking about, he's been here. Like, he's, his ministry, he, they, 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 they filled up the rest of the Gospels for Apollos. And Apollos actually does the opposite thing that Paul did. He goes back to Corinth. We're going to read that in the very next verse, by the way. But I want you to see that while all that was happening, Paul is not just, you know, twiddling his thumbs. He went back to Syria. He went back to Jerusalem. He went up to Antioch. And very shortly thereafter, he begins to make another trip overland to come back to this place. Now, I'm going to switch maps. This time, I'm going to show you what is, uh, what is showing Paul's third missionary journey. Again, I'm going to circle to you the city of Ephesus so you know exactly where that's at. What we're talking about is on the coastline. It is about a mile off the uh, coast of the Aegean Sea there in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Now, let's continue reading. Acts chapter 19. We're just going to keep right on reading through because here's where we read the background of what happened with these Ephesian believers. Acts 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, remember he had just left and went over to, across the Aegean to Corinth, where Paul had originally come from before he went to Ephesus, that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Now he comes back. He was there briefly. He left Priscilla and Aquila. He traveled, took some time, and now he comes back. And it says that there, when he came back to Ephesus, he found some disciples. So the seeds that he began, had begun to plant had brought some fruit. And he said to them in verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John, excuse me, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So we'll catch my map up real quickly. While Apollos starts there, begins this work, makes some disciples, Priscilla and Aquila exclaim, or proclaim to him more fully the way of the Lord, he leaves, goes to Corinth. Paul is making an overland journey and returning back to Ephesus. Now, I remember this when we taught through Acts, or studied Acts on Sunday morning a few years ago, that we read this text, and I remember saying things like this. Uh, 
these, these verses are good for us because I think they present questions to us. It clearly says that when Paul returns, he finds disciples. He finds those who are followers. But it also clearly says that at this point, they were not filled with the Holy Spirit. They were baptized in the baptism of John, which Paul says this way, that John baptized for repentance. So John, remember, remember John's message, repent, the kingdom is at hand, change your ways. God is going to do something through the, this man who's going to follow me. But that was all they had heard yet, or all they were baptized into. And Paul says, John was pointing to this Jesus, and Jesus again, uh, it's implied here, but Jesus again has now come. Because on hearing that, these believers now receive baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are no longer saying, I want to just, I'm sorry. Think of it this way. They're not saying before what Apollos was telling them. He said, you need to recognize your sinfulness before God. And they said, we recognize that. And we want to be, we, we're sorry about that. We want to repent of that. We want to do better. And they got baptized. But they were not yet filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Paul comes along and says, well, John was talking about, about repentance, but he was really pointing us to preparing the way for Jesus to come, and Jesus has now come. And when Jesus died and rose again, now all this is implied in this, but we know it from the rest of the New Testament. When Jesus died and rose again and ascended, he said, when I leave, who's going to come? The Holy Spirit's going to come. Now something is available, someone is available to you that has not been available. So if you want to repent of your sin, you now have a new covenant, a new way of living, a new way of being right with God, a new way of actually, if you paid attention to Chris's message last week, a new way of actually being able to do what God created you to do. That's called freedom in Christ. And that is by the Holy Spirit coming and taking up residence inside of you. So Paul baptizes them. And the Holy Spirit comes and immediately they see signs. There was 12 of them. Immediately they see signs. It says they, they spoke in tongues. They prophesied. And then for three months he goes into the synagogue. Remember they asked him the first time he was there. Would you come back and teach us? He said if God wills I will. And God willed it. And he came back and he taught them for three months in the synagogue. Well, as is always the case when the truth of God comes to those who don't want to yield to God's truth, then they began, there were some who said, I don't want to change. These were Jewish people. Some Jews who began to be stubborn and began to speak evil of what the, what, uh, the book of Acts here, what Luke calls the way, the following of Jesus. By the way, I love that. I think we probably talked about that. But the way is because it, it indicates that there's something active about it. And again, I, I told you, my series is called Walk as Children of Light. Paul spends a lot of time in Ephesians talking about the fact that we are active. We are active. We're walking. We're not sitting. We're walking. And they began to speak evil of the way. So Paul withdraws from the synagogue, takes his disciples, the, the believers in Jesus, with him. And they don't stop meeting, do they? In fact, it says they begin to meet in this hall, this public hall, this hall of Tyrannus. And how long do they meet? Let's see how well you were paying attention when we read. How long do they meet? For two years. I stress that because I think we sometimes have this idea that Paul went along and planted a church, was there for a couple of weeks and went on, and then the church kept on thriving. We think Paul is this wonderful, and Paul was this wonderful man of God. But for two years, he was there planting this church, teaching them drawing more believers. And a result of that was that throughout not just Ephesus, 
but the Asia Minor, that, that crossroads you see going north and south up the coastline, and this line that Paul actually would have gone through Laodicea, Colossae, through there, that the word began to spread, and all the people heard of the Lord Jesus. But we're not even fully there yet with what God was doing in Ephesus. I want you to hear this next part because I want to make the point that there were authentic, sincere, powerful conversions to Jesus Christ in the city of Ephesus. Let's keep reading in Acts chapter 19. In verse 11, here's what happened. It says, God was doing extraordinary. So take this, extraordinary miracles. Now, miracles are not ordinary by definition, right? Like miracles are not natural. That's what a miracle is, not natural. So when Luke says that they were extraordinary miracles, that means they were unnatural things that were even beyond what is normally unnatural. God was doing fantastic things, never before done things, things that were completely out of the realm of expectation. And this is an example of them. He was doing them through the hands of Paul, verse 12. So that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. You may ask yourself why God was doing that. I'm gonna tell you it's the next verses that come that tell us why God was doing these extraordinary things. Because what appeared to become such an ordinary thing or such an incredible thing, we read that more people want a part of that, right? In verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, that's a mouthful, there's a people that were going around and were already involved in the spiritual realm, dabbling in the spiritual realm. They were very aware of the spiritual realm, very aware of evil spirits and good spirits and aware of those things. Some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, and this is what they said. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now, we don't have time this morning, but uh, it, it would do you some good, perhaps, to just spend some time thinking about what I just read to you and the implications of what I just read to you. These were seven sons of a Jewish high priest, and they were dabbling in exorcism. He's the Jewish high priest. He's the leader of God's people in that area, supposedly, and his sons were uh, dabbling in exorcism, were not just dabbling, they were exorcists, and they were addressing, and they began to try to address evil spirits in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, this is very instructive, we don't have time to go into this, we did this in Acts, but Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. One man against seven. And this became, and here's the point of what all this is happening. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, so that's, as if that's not enough, also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. 
So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I'm going to tell you the point of all of that. If you, if, you, if you read the first part, if you read verse 11 and said, Aha, God does extraordinary things and we should see them doing it all over the place. That's neither here nor there whether I'm going to argue with you about that this morning. But the point of all of that is to drive this story forward. To realize what happened in the city of Ephesus. People were becoming believers. And, they were, and for two years, Paul is planting. And there's people that are saying, yes, we believe. And, they, and there was, I'm sure, lots of success and lots of growth. But then as God was doing these extraordinary things through Paul, there was these men who were not believers and said, hey, we're going to try this because this was pretty cool. And what happens is that God made it clear that the name of Jesus is above all but is not to be trifled with. And as he did so, and these seven men paid the price because they fled the home, naked and wounded, overpowered by one man, look what else happened. First of all, the name of God was extolled, lifted high because fear came upon everyone, and they realized how holy and powerful and glorious God truly is. And second of all, look what happened to the believers. The believers suddenly realized, whoa. I put myself in, but I kind of had both things going on, right? Like, I'm with Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I'm growing in Jesus, but I still do this stuff too. And they began to realize that following Jesus is serious business. And following Jesus requires allegiance to him. And following Jesus means I can have no part of anything other than Jesus. And out of that, the whole church began to come forward and saying, we've been doing this wrong. We've had these things in our lives that are not right. And they began to burn their books of magic arts. And they began to confess the things they were doing that were impure. And the result was the church was purified. I'll tell you, from my estimation... In today's world, it is no different. If God begins to do extraordinarily mighty things, his goal is to bring glory and honor to his name and to purify his church. That the church realizes what a mighty, powerful God we have and what happens when we try to mix two things together that ought not to be. Paul would write to the Corinthians, do you not know that light has no fellowship with darkness? One of the great tragedies of our evangelical modern church today, especially for the arm that wants to see the powerful miracles, is that we forget this lesson that is taught in Acts and we think it's for our glory or for our power or that we can have those things happen without the effect of it purifying us. The church in Ephesus had authentic conversions. In fact, we know how authentic they were and how much this damaged the people who were unbelievers by the next text. Paul's ministry came to an end, actually. Do you know? Think of this. The mighty things that God was doing through Paul. Handkerchiefs touching his skin and going and touching someone else and healing them. And this powerful display of God's power and this church coming forward and burning 50,000 uh, pieces of silver's worth of, of books and stuff they should not have been involved in to start with. And you think, this is great. And it actually spells the end of Paul's ministry there, doesn't it? Because what happens next? 
Read verse 21. Now after those events, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he's planning on moving out, but it says, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time, about when these results started taking place, the effects of what just happened took place. Listen to what those effects were. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know from this business we have our wealth. And you see, excuse me, and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Doesn't that seem like such an obvious statement to you? Gods made with hands are not gods. Verse 27, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, those people that Demetrius gathered, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together." Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. There's so much more in there. There's so much we could talk about. But here's what I want you to know. One thing I haven't told you yet is the city of Ephesus was the place where the temple for the goddess Artemis was located. It was known as one of the wonders of the world in that time. One of the great temples. People came from all over to visit it. Artemis was supposed, supposedly the goddess of fruitfulness. Actually, if you want to have an Old Testament connection, she was actually borrowed from an Asi Asiatic god who himself comes from uh, what you read in the Old Testament, the goddess Ashtoreth. Remember reading about the Ashtoreth of the Sidonians? This, the, same, the same goddess, the same uh, deity that is supposed to be, supposedly being worshipped. And this brought the city of Ephesians uh, the city of Ephesus, the city of the Ephesians, brought them great wealth and recognition. Now, put some logical thinking together. We read in verses 11 through 20 that there was this great incident where uh, this 
evil spirit overpowered this man and then out of that came this great purifying of the church. And one of the next things we read about is that the uh, silversmiths who were making little idols say we're losing all kinds of business. Maybe not in its entirety, but who was buying all the things they were making? Now certainly there were other people, but you know this, uh, this effect that we read in verse 11 through 20, this authentic conversion had an incredible real impact on the city of Ephesus. It changed the dynamic of that city. So much so that those who were not believers and who made their living by selling little shrines and articles that went with those, uh, the idols, the goddess, of, 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 of the goddess Artemis, so much so that they were losing their livelihood. Now, you can read everything you want about the great riots, but the end result of it is that after that uproar ceased, we read in verse 1 of chapter 20, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. He left because the riot was so great. Now, he also left, as you read, I, there's a reason I think it says in verse 21 that Paul has already been led by the Spirit because we don't want to have the mistaken identity that Paul was uh, not allowed to minister somewhere that God still wanted him to be. God was moving him along. But this, the, the story is there to help us see how dramatically the people of Ephesus changed. I'm going to try to tie all this together here. Now, Paul, he travels up. You see the map there. He travels up, goes through Europe, goes all the way back down into, into uh, the isthmus there, into uh, uh, Greece, modern-day Greece, goes right back up. He comes back, and as he travels back to Jerusalem. Remember, that's his intent. He wants to go to Macedonia, Achaia, and then back to Jerusalem. He eventually wants to be in Rome. If you know from the book of Acts, he is going to end up there. Not maybe how most of us would like to end up there, but he's going to end up there in chains. As he sails back to uh, the Syrian coast and eventually to Jerusalem, we have one more interaction that happens with Ephesus on his way back. Now, he, Paul does not go to Ephesus again, but he actually stops at this little town called Miletus. In Miletus, he sends for the Ephesian elders. If you flip in your Bible, or for me, it's flipping a page. It may not be for you. In Acts chapter 20, and I now want to read these verses to you. Again, a lot of background. Hopefully, you don't have to make a lot of comments about this. In verse 17, as Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem, it says, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So the church is established. Paul was there for almost three years, actually. Uh, the church is established. There's elders there. He had sent some of his own followers, disciples, back there to uh, give leadership there. Um, when, he had, when they came to him, he said to them, here's his conversation with the Ephesian elders. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, can I just... Can I just loop back one more time? That first piece, it's specifically stated this way because that first piece was what uh, the, the disciples knew when they had the baptism of John, the repentance toward God. It's the second piece of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul brought to them when they got baptized and were filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. 
But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. It's a pretty bold statement there. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And he gives them some instruction. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. I'm trying to give you a glimpse of the life, the birth of the church and the life of these Ephesian believers because Paul is going to write them a letter, right? This letter that we're going to study in the next coming weeks, he was written to these people we're reading about. Paul's first appearance, Paul's second appearance, the, the work that Apollos began, Paul's second appearance and the church that came, came, that came forth out of that and this incredible purifying movement that happened, this, these authentic conversions that happened and Paul moves on because of this big riot that, they, that they, they stood in the face of and he comes back and now he's giving them some charges. We know, by the way, that his charges came true because we read when Paul is instructing Timothy, let me just flip there real quick, when Paul is writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says this, he says, verse 3, as I urged you, to Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And he goes on, he read the letter of 1 Timothy, you see that what Paul predicted, in fact, came true. Well, after he left, there were people that rose up among them. There were wolves that came from the outside, but there were also people that came up from among them who would seek to draw them away from the faithful teaching that Paul had left with them with. Let me give you one more picture this morning. Time to wrap this up, but I'm going to change the map one more time. Again, you see Turkey. You see Asia Minor. Again, I'm going to circle for you where Ephesus is at because there's one more mention of the people of Ephesus, the church that is in Ephesus in Scripture. And we know what a devastating effect these wolves were having that came from the outside and what a devastating effect these uh, people who taught false doctrine that came up from the inside were having because Jesus, when he reveals to John what is going to happen and he, before he does that, with Jesus' return, he has a message for the churches and one of those churches he has a message for is the church at Ephesus. And he says these things. This is from Revelation chapter 2, the verse, first seven verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, same city, group of believers. Now, whether it's the exact same group of believers, 
or as I tend to think of it as time went on, this group of believers, this church at Ephesus, here's what Jesus says, write to them. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, he's just referring to himself, the words of Jesus. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. So they're doing the work, right? They're working hard. In fact, they're even calling out those who say they're from God and aren't. And you found them to be false, he says. Verse three, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's much more we have to do in, in, in sort of introductory work. We're going to spend some more time next week in introducing the themes of the book of Ephesians. Won't take time to do it today. But I wanted to encapsulate some background work so that you can have in mind who these Ephesian believers are that Paul is writing to. We see them on a journey of the church being planted and of great incredible growth and of purity and of devotion to Jesus we see them being warned, we see them carrying out, and we see them doing works, and Jesus reflects to these things as he speaks to them in Revelation. He says, I know that you are working hard, you're enduring patiently, you're bearing up for my name's sake, you're not growing weary, you're testing those who are apostles, but, but, and I have in mind, as I lay over Revelation chapter two, I have in mind this great scene of this bonfire. That as they realized how precious and how great and mighty God is in this Jesus whom they serve, and they willingly divulge their practices, and they burn their books of magic arts, and they purify themselves, that was done out of devotion to their master. And I overlay these words where Jesus comes to them at some point and says, church, you have lost that love. You're working hard. You're trying to identify the places that the church has gone wrong and the, where, where you're trying to identify false teaching. And I commend that in some way, but I have this against you. It is from these words as we study the book of Ephesians and hear the things that Paul is addressing to them that enables us to say, we want today, we, church at Riverview, we want to study these words. We want to put on and to put into practice this practical advice, knowing more than anything that the central message of Ephesians is that Jesus Christ is the glorified head of the church and it is our devotion to him that puts us in the place where we ought to be. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. We're going to read this letter, and we're going to, I'm going to encourage you to write ourselves in there to the saints who are at Riverview and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Pray with me, if you would. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. May you be preparing us, our hearts, Father, to engage in a study of the book of Ephesians, not just to understand grammatically how the words relate and to understand these great truths that God is uh, saying through Paul, that you are saying through Paul, and not even just to understand how they apply to the people of Ephesus but for us to learn who we are in Christ and for us to grow in our love for you, 
our devotion to you, that out of that love and devotion comes a pure bride waiting for the return of its master, of its husband, of her husband. A church who is walking as children of light, full of what is right and good and true, and trying to discern what is pleasing to you, God, for you are the one we exist to please. God, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.